It was a grim joke that started when six heirs came to an ugly house on a rain-swept island to hear a madman's will. But the joke soon turned to murder, and in the end it was hard to tell who had the last laugh. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Last Laugh. I'd spent a week waiting through moldy beer joints and cheap hotels after a dancer on the downgrade. And when I found her, she was two days dead in a coal cellar, all of which left me with a rancid taste in my mouth. But when I woke up after a night's sleep to the tune of a robin on my windowsill, I realized it was spring and time for Marlowe to take a long, easy weekend someplace. Someplace where the surf meets sand like it does at, say, Ensenada. Without so much as a second thought, I threw some clothes in a bag, phoned the Riviera Pacifico for reservations and charged out the door, where I ran head-on into a funny man with a studious face charging in. Oh, oh, oh I, I, I'm awfully sorry. Why... Why, you're Philip Marlowe. Yeah, yeah, I know. And my name is Darwin. I represent the law firm that handles the interests of Julius Spangler. Therefore, Did you say Julius to... Spangler? Goodbye, Mr. Darwin. Uh, now, wait, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, now, listen, I had a run-in with that screwball Spangler less than a month ago. A man was knocked down a flight of stairs, I got shot at, and a popping house was set on fire, and Julius called it a practical joke and laughed himself silly. Best I could do for him was three days in jail. It should have been three years. Goodbye, Mr. Darwin. Yeah, that sort of thing is all over now, Mr. Marlowe. Mr. Spangler is dead. Spangler's dead? Yes, he died last week in Brazil, the result of a hunting accident. And he has named you in his will. He's named me? You mean I... Uh, precisely. You're one of Mr. Spangler's heirs. Oh. I shall read the will tonight at 8 o'clock in his home on Catalina Island. I, uh, I trust you'll be present. Not on your life. It's me for Ensenada, and nothing's going to stop me. Goodbye, Mr. Dowell. There are only five other heirs, huh? and the estate runs well over $500,000. Oh? Almost any way you split that much up, Mr. Marlowe, it comes out something more substantial than a weekend at Ensenada. Goodbye, Mr. Marlowe. It was fantastic, but then so was Julius Spangler. Who knows? Maybe he actually admired me for throwing him in jail. After all, what's old Mexico got that Catalina doesn't have and better? What could I lose? It was only a matter of minutes before I was in Wilmington and climbing the gangplank of the last boat for Catalina Island. She nosed past the breakwater and headed for the open sea and the green water glistened with gold from the sun, slanting into a bank of clouds on the horizon. Ah, this was the light. I sat back and relaxed for all of ten seconds before the name Spangler came up again. This time being volleyed between a matron meticulously tailored by I.J. Fox, who clung to a pipe-smoking gentleman at the rail and a cute blonde ball of fire facing them. Some of my friends are aboard, and I don't want to be seen with you. Look, you may be your highness, Millicent Burke Ashby, to those snoots, but you're still just Millie Spangler to me, you overstuffed social climber. Why, you insufferable little upstart, I... You are nothing! I'll give him a good show, like this. Oh, Nicky Oh, you Spangler, take me away from here. Well, of course. I, I think I'm going to faint. I'm nuts. Well, what are you staring at, Buster? Haven't you ever seen a red jersey sweater before? Uh, <clears throat> how do you do? <laughs> yeah, that sweater plus that right hook of yours adds up to quite an exhibition. You must belong to Julius. He was my uncle, but... Now, wait. Don't tell me you're in his will, too. 
Then you're Philip Marlowe. Yeah, I got him three days in the cooler, so now I'm in air. Who are your two friends? Millicent Burke Ashby, my half-sister, a professional snob I'm going to get mad enough at to kill one of these days. The jerk with her is Bennett Haynes, a cousin not enough times removed. They're also heirs. Which still leaves two more. Yeah, an old geezer who collects butterflies and that blockhead Roderick who passed for secretary and companion to Uncle Julius. Yeah, I know Roderick. And what do you pass for, Nicky? As if I couldn't tell. You can't. Ever been in Nick's bar and grill on La Brea Marlowe? Well, I'm Nick. No kidding. Mm-hmm. And if this inheritance hadn't come along, I'd have lost my shirt. Boy, I'm really in a money jam, and Uncle Julius is saving the day for me. Yeah, but he had to die to do it. Well, sure, that's the only way he ever would. Hmm. I wrote and asked him for a $10,000 loan once. Got a check back in the return mail, but it was signed by Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> so I came out here to Catalina to see him, but he'd already left for Iceland. I spent a week by myself painting his launch for amusement. Then I went home again without a cent. Yeah, he was a charmingly whimsical old man. By the way, where's his house? Over on the deserted side of the island, naturally. Naturally. The only way to get to it is by launch. Roderick's going to meet us, meet us when we dock at Avalon. Oh, fine. You mean we'll be stuck at Spangler's old house all night? Is that bad, Phil? It's quite lovely. In a lot of ways. Two hours later, we docked at Avalon. The clouds that had been on the horizon were now overhead and looking very soggy. Roderick, the late Mr. Spangler's secretary, in a striped silk shirt, gold hickok cufflinks, polka dot bow tie and derby, was waiting for us with a launch. And after we had all shivered through another spray-splashed wave-bucking hour and a half, we finally pulled into a small cove. A house squatted alone on a point of rocks a hundred practically vertical feet above the water. And as we laboriously made our way up to it, the rains came. Julius Spangler would have loved it. When the door closed behind us, everyone dashed for the nearest fireplace except me. I was cornered by a septuagenarian with a shock of white hair, a scraggly yellow mustache, and spectacles so thick they looked like shot glasses with horn rims. He rolled up in a wheelchair, which he handled like it was a hot rod, skidded to a stop, and shoved a fistful of brandy out at me. Howdy, young fella. This, I figured, was the butterfly-collecting cousin, yeah. Matthew Spangler. Better have a slug of this before pneumonia sets in. <laughs> well, sir, I suppose you're here for the reading of Cousin Julius's will. Yeah, yeah, so that's my, right. So I... am I. Wouldn't miss it for the world. No. He's, uh leaving me his collection of nymphalidia. Butterflies, you know. I don't like money, just bugs. Figures. <laughs> yes, sir. Been an entomologist for 50 years, lepidopterist for 40. I've got specimens of 12,000 species. Only a few thousand left to go. Practically nothing. <laughs> You've a keen mind. Mm -hmm. Here, here, have a cigar. Thank you. No, yeah. I, I... Go I... on, go on, go on. It's the best. Save it for later when you've got something to celebrate. Oh, there's Roderick. He'll show you around. I want to go meet these young ladies. So long, son. I'll see you. Out of the way, Roderick. Hey, hey, hey. Watch it. Crazy wheelchair jockey almost ran me down. Well, Mr. Marlowe, it's nice to have you with us. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. Look, Roderick, why did Julius stick me in his will along with all his relatives? I don't know. Maybe he was nuts. You can say that again. Keeping all his junk, for instance. Junk? Well, these are trophies. That burnt match there was used in the first hotfoot. Julius perfected that gag in 1903. Spangler contribution to American culture, huh? Well, get you. What did you ever do? Wait, wise guy. This one's even better. He panicked the whole city with this phony newspaper headline. Here. Hmm? Report of baby snakes and city water system falls? Yeah. He tells them there's nothing to it, and they still blow their tops. <laughs> That's tremendous, huh? Yeah, yeah, quaint. Julius was right. You've got no sense of humor. The lawyer Darwin will read the will in 30 minutes, so be ready.
passed the half hour at a window with Nicky watching the rain slash at the glass. Then at 8 o'clock on the button, the library doors swung open and Darwin summoned the six of us into the room. As we sat down, the lawyer chewed his way through the legal preliminaries for the first time. It was a tense hush. A half a million dollars changing hands was an impressive occasion. And what was more impressive was that I might get some of it. <laughs> I even caught myself wondering about inheritance taxes. Darwin completed the introduction of the will. Yes, it will bring us up to the disposition of the real and personal property of Julius Spangler, who passed away this life March 26, 1949. Oh, poor old Julius. I can't believe he's really gone, Millicent, you know. Oh, he was a darling beneath it all, Bennett. Poor, lonely, dear Uncle Julius. Oh, quiet, quiet. Get on with it, you old relic. Read it. Yes, go on, please. Uh, yes. <coughs> well, very well. First, uh... To uh, my dear cousin Matthew, I leave my cyanide jar, the silk net, and the collection of Nymphalidia. <laughs> Good old Julius, I knew he'd do it. Bless his old bones. Yes, well, to Philip Marlowe, intrepid Shamus. Uh, oh, that, that's a uh, private detective, I think. Oh. Yes, private detective. With no sense of humor, 10,000 empty beer bottles worth five cents apiece. Uh, clean. Uh, these aren't. Yes. Well, for this, I skipped Ensenada. I should learn. Oh, Phil, I'm so sorry. Oh, please, yeah, well, Nicky. What did you expect, really? Millicent, be quiet. Go ahead, Darwin. Uh, what about us, his real heirs? Yes, yes well, well, to Millicent Burke Ashby, Granny, $50,000, which is... Which is the value of a fish market at Central and Northrop Streets on the condition that she personally operate this market for one year. <laughs> oh, good heavens, I think I'm going to fail. Oh, shut up, Matthew. Uh, go on, Darwin. <clears throat> Am I next? Uh, yes, you are. You are. Yes, yes. Seventy-five thousand dollars oh. and a, and a dog sled. And a do uh, dog sled. <laughs> well, what, what what's that for? Oh, to get your claim. You see, the money is the assayed minimum value of a gold claim at Point Anxiety, Alaska, oh, no. which which it says here you must develop with your own hands. Oh, quiet, <laughs> that doddering old fool! I'll fight this travesty of a will through yes, every court in the state. Right You'll never get away with this. Oh, wait a minute! You've never worked for anything in your life, Bennett. What was that? Oh, you two got no more than you deserved. Why? What about me, Darwin? I've worked at least. Hey, well, Miss Spangler, I believe you you better sit down. <laughs> to my grandniece, Nicola, who has learned how to work hard for what she wants, I leave my sincere congratulations and one dollar. Oh, no, he wouldn't. I, I need money now. And finally, all the remainder of my property, real and personal, I bequeath to a most genteel, brilliant, and loyal man, my secretary, Roderick D. Driscoll. Uh, well, no, ain't that sweet of the old man? Oh, then, my, you left me all that That's money. over $300,000 to this baboon here. You'll never get it. I'll call my lawyer. Mark, He'll fight you here. Oh, this is horrible. Yeah, it's too bad, baby. Well, you can have my $500 fortune in old beer bottles. Me for Ensenada. He got what he wanted, Nicky. Let him laugh. <laughs> I'll say I did. Whoa! Shut up. Shut up, Matthew. Stop it, Matthew. You're hysterical, Matthew. <laughs> hysterical, eh? I sure am, kiddo. But Matthew... <laughs> Get a load of this! <laughs> we all stood there with our mouths hanging open as the old invalid leaped to his feet, tipped over his wheelchair... Made a grab for a shock of white hair with one hand and ripped it off. It was a wig and a good one. With the other hand, he tore the phony yellow mustache off his lip and still laughing like a ticklish hyena. He identified himself as the one and only Julius Spangler. Alive and in the flesh. <laughs> yes, this is the crowning achievement of my career. <laughs> Look at you. Look at your silly faces. I wasn't going to give it away till tomorrow, but I couldn't hold it back. <laughs> 
Oh, this is rich. The best gag we ever pulled. <laughs> right, Roderick? Roderick! Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <Fine>. right. <laughs> this is humiliating. I'm calling the firm at once. You're mad, Julius. Absolutely insane. <laughs> Why? Why? Because you can't stand the smell of fish? Oh. <laughs> what about you, Marlowe? Did I get the last laugh on you, or didn't I, eh? You did. <laughs> you're still nothing but a mixed-up jerk, Julius. Wonderful. But I want to see you mixed up with those dirty beer bottles. Wash the labels off. Get Nickelback, you know. <laughs> I'd like to break every one of them across the bridge of your nose, funny man. That's what I like. A good sport. <laughs> How about it, Nicky? Isn't it funny? Not very. Huh. What do you mean? I sat in at the reading of my own will. So now I know what you really think of me. Not quite you don't. Because I think this. But... <laughs> You vixen, you spit on me. How dare you? I'll kill you for that. No, you don't, Spangler. Stop it. You lay a hand on it, I'll flatten you in spite of your years. Ah. That goes for you, too, Roderick. Stay back. <laughs> None of you can take a joke. <laughs> Look after these fools, Roderick. Give them anything they want. I'm going to have a good laugh all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> After the mastermind of the impractical joke had guffawed his way out of the room, Roderick took his life in his hands and invited everyone to coffee and brandy. But the zest had gone out of the erstwhile airs like the snap from a second-hand girdle. So without as much as a backward glance, they all went their separate ways to their rooms. All but Marlowe. I drank coffee and brandy, and since the rain had stopped, tried for 20 minutes to threaten, bribe, and argue Roderick out of a way back to Avalon. But he swore it was impossible, and I was about to swear back at him when we heard it. <laughs> to the French doors at the end of the room and out. Millicent was on the walk outside, her hands clamped against her mouth, staring down at the rocks near the surging water 80 feet below. Mrs. Ashby, what happened? What is it? Millicent, what's the matter? It's Julius. He's down there. He he must have fallen. Yeah. Yeah, The battery was pushed by somebody who couldn't take a joke. just a moment, we will return to the second act of the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, it stands to reason. It's a proven fact. If we all work together to produce more per man, per machine, per hour, every one of us will gain from the cooperation. This is the American economic system. It operates for the benefit of all the people. We can and should cooperate for better jobs, higher incomes, more of the good things of life. For your free copy of the booklet, The Miracle of America, write Box 10, Times Square Station, New York City. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Last Laugh. It was 80 feet from Spangler's balcony to the ugly jumble of sharp black rock that lined the shore. And it was there, minutes after Millicent's all-out scream, that Roderick and I found the broken body of the man whose raucous laugh still seemed to be tangled in the wind around us. And when we turned our eyes up from the death at our feet back to the balcony above, we could barely make out the cross piece of the porch rail still dangling at a crazy angle from its single remaining support with all the ominous silence of a gallows. Gee, Mr. Marlowe, I can't believe that he's gone and that all this really happened so... Mr. Marlowe, what are you looking at? Up there, on the balcony. 
There's someone moving, Roderick. Which makes this a good time to start counting noses. Let's go. Huh? Well, what about Millicent? Shouldn't we look after her? No, no. For the time being. Come on. Come on, Roderick. I want the fastest way over those side stairs there. They lead us back up to the balcony because right now I'm in one big hurry. <laughs> Nobody here, Milo. Are you sure you saw... Hold it, hold it. Somebody's coming. Get back away from the rail. Why, it's Bennett Haynes. Yeah. I'm very interested in the spot where that cross piece came loose from the top of that post. Well, what's he doing there now? I mean, the way he's scratching something across the top of it. The gentleman, Roderick, has forgotten that it rained. Oh. He's trying to strike a match on wet wood. Mr. Haynes! Uh, what? Would you like to use my thumbnail? It's dry. Fine. Oh, Milo, uh, what are you and... Roderick doing here? It's called spying. And you, Mr. Haynes? I am here, Marlowe, because I think it's very strange that this accident should have happened less than an hour after Julius Spangler left a room full of people who hated him. Which incidentally included you? Yes. But I know that I had nothing to do with this. Now, here. A couple of matches for that stellar thumbnail. Uh, don't go too close to the edge, Marlowe. Thanks, Roderick. I won't. I'll only go close enough to... Marlowe, if you're staring at that mark across the top of the post, stop wasting your time. I just made it with that match that wouldn't light on wet wood, remember? Mm-hmm. But that mark is not what I'm staring at. It's this green one here on the edges of the top of the post. A mark that could mean somebody pried the cross piece loose with an object that was covered with green paint. All of which points up two things, huh? First, that someone murdered Spangler by loosening this rail, and second, that I've still got a couple of noses left to count. One belongs to a lawyer named Darwin, and the other to the fancy owner of Nick's Bar and Grill. What's that? It's Millicent there, down yeah, below. in trouble. Come on. Let's follow the leader with me out in front, back down the wooden stairs and over to the spot where Millicent Burke Ashby, the tailored lady, was sprawled over a lot of soft ground. Unhurt, but coming apart at the seams in more ways than one. I sent Bennett Haynes off to find Darwin and then helped Millicent to her feet. Shook well and waited for results. Millicent! Millicent, make sense. Come on. Take it from the top, will you? Tell us what happened. Oh, it was Nikki. Yeah? I saw her running away from the house. Go on. She was running toward the water. And when you tried to stop her, she knocked you down? Yes, yes. She she, she slapped me and said I should keep my mouth shut. Did she say why? No, she just said something about green green paint. Green paint? What about it? Come on, Millicent, think hard. What about the paint? We've got to get to Nikki Spangler fast. Roderick, she was headed down toward the water. How many boats are tied up there? Uh, just a launch and a little. Yeah? No, wait a second. There's the outboard. She used to run that herself. All right, then we split. You for the launch and me for the outboard. Now, where is it? We're down there in that poacher behind the trees. But you better let me take care of that, Milo. It's dark and slippery in there, and I know my way around. Oh, thanks. I'll take my chances. At the moment, I'm very anxious to meet up with that lady again in person. Now, you get to the launch, and you, Millicent, back to the house. Whoever finds her, yell, good and loud. bungalow on stilts. When I started inside, slowly, unsure of both my footing and the company on hand, I was suddenly very sorry that I'd left my 38 back in L.A. But in the next minute, I began to breathe easier because just visible ahead of me was a Spangler outboard. And when I got closer, I saw that it was empty. Then I heard somebody behind me. I turned just in time to see a thick, crooked branch coming at my head fast. Oh! Oh! I couldn't tell if the warm blood trickling from the cut just below my ear was 
Wasn't from where the branch had hit my head. Or from where my head had hit the planking. But it didn't matter because... Either way, it hurt. I... I got to my feet slowly. I reached into my pocket for one of the matches that Haynes had given me in the faint hope that a little light might... might reveal something about whoever had been guilty of relaxing me like a chocolate soldier in a Turkish bath. But then, even as I was about to strike the match, I stopped. Framed at one side of the open doorway was a silhouette of a man. I stood where I was and waited motionless while he slowly took a step toward me and another... He started on his third. I grabbed him. Let go of me. What are you your arms, Owen, Just in case you're still carrying a thick branch. I haven't got anything in my hand. All right. Now, what are you doing here? Come on, barrister. At the moment you're my witness, so talk. Why are you here? I, I, I spoke to, to Millicent. Now, Mr. Marlowe, is, is the witness relieved? Yeah, I guess so. Sorry about your arm, Darwin, but the last visitor here wasn't empty-handed. This time I want to be ready. Do you have any idea who the visitor was, Mr. Martin? No, no, I don't. I was just going to strike this match to see if I... I, I oh, oh, my head. Oh, here, 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 Mr. Uh, Martin. Let, let, let me strike it for you. Thanks. I doubt it will do any good. Oh. Now, oh. oh, there, you, you see anything? No. No, nothing. Well, it was a long shot anyway. And what? What do you see, Mr. Marlowe? What is it? Darwin. Something I should have seen a long time ago. And by that I mean that the launch of Nicky Spangler is my next stop. Goodbye, friend. Thanks for the interruption. It may save a life. It was a 440 with plenty of obstacles and no lights from the boat shed down to the launch. But even as I got there out of breath with the shooting pains in my head making a dartboard out of the lining of my scalp, I knew who had murdered Julia Spangler. But I didn't know were the whys and wherefores of the green paint that had everybody running. A minute later, I quietly climbed aboard the launch and started slowly to the stern where I could hear voices. I knew that the explanation wasn't far off. When I was close enough to see Nikki standing in the reflected light of the moon wash, I didn't have to hear anything because, clenched in her hands and held close to her side, was the answer to the marks I'd seen on the post on Spangler's balcony. It was a crowbar, the business end of it covered with green paint. Opposite her was the reason for the fear in her voice. It was the man who had killed the practical joker... Julia Spangler's ever-faithful secretary, Roderick. You're being awful stubborn, Nicky, which is something you must have got from your late granduncle. Now, give me that crowbar. Why? So you can get rid of it, me too, and then return to the others and mourn the loss of your employer? Sure. I just love everyone to think that I miss him terribly when the truth is that I kill him. I hated him and his stupid jokes every minute of every day that I worked for him. Hated him, Nicky, the way I hate you and your stupid ways. Don't give me that crowbar! Don't do it, Nicky. Don't move, Roderick. I'll blow your head off. I'll get back, Buster. Get away from her and stay in one place or I'll shoot. Oh, so help me. Marlo, he did it. He killed Julius because he hated him. I haven't a chance at a half a million bucks, right, Broderick? I don't know what you're talking about. Then, oh, 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 my head. What is it, Marlo? Nothing, honey. I, I walked into a branch that our friend here was holding a little while ago. I still don't know what you're talking about. And I'll make it real plain. Broderick, you killed Julius Spangler because you wanted to turn his greatest practical joke into a bonanza for yourself. You wanted that screwy will to stand. Nobody else was in on the gag, not even the lawyer. So nobody else would ever know that it was only a gag. Nor would anybody care that some wacky old cousin who, who liked butterflies, accidentally fell to his death. But, Marlo, Julius was killed after. We all knew the whole thing was only a practical joke. Yeah, yeah, but that wasn't part of the original plan, Nicky. Julius wasn't going to unmask himself and the joke about the will until the next morning. Isn't that also correct, Roderick? 
Yeah, yeah, that's correct, Smart Cut. Yeah. I was going to get everything. But when that failed, I still wanted him to die. And I would have gotten away with that if this dame here hadn't been so curious about those green markings on the railing. And, Roderick, if this same dame hadn't also remembered a crowbar that she'd once spilled some green paint I on... I heard enough! Yeah. Yeah, for the time being, I... I, I, I guess, guess you have. Oh, Marlo. Marlo, it's your head again, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? The poor boy. No, you don't, <laughs> Roderick. Stay back! Oh, Marlo. Marlo, are you all right? Huh? Are you? Uh, not, not exactly, honey. Did you, did you get him? Yeah, with the crowbar, no less. Oh. But you better give me your gun in case he wakes up suddenly. I can't. I, can't. I, I haven't got one, baby. You don't have one. But you're going to pass out. What will I do with him? Oh, baby, there's only, there's only one thing to do. Let him have it again. Marlo. Marlo. Marlo, are you all right now? Hmm? Oh, yeah, I'm all right. What's going on? Oh, Nikki. Mm-hmm, Nikki. And before you can say, where am I, I'll tell you, honey. Hmm? This is Avalon, a lovely spot on the island of Santa Catalina. It's now 2 o'clock in the morning. Your head isn't so much as fractured... And you're sitting up in a chair that belongs to the nice lady who rented you this room at a reasonable price. And the others? <laughs> All back at the place, except, of course, Roderick. Last I heard of him, he was still answering questions for policemen. Mm. Which, by the way, brings me right to the point. This I gotta know. Phil, how did you figure that Roderick was guilty? Wet wood, Nicky. Wet wood that should have been dry. It was up on Julius paddling his balcony. The top of the post that had green moss on it was wet. Even though the tight-fitting cross piece that rested over it should have kept it dry. So obviously the rail was pried loose just before the will was read, while it was still raining. How do you figure, Marlowe? Well, because it had stopped raining and the moon was shining by the time Matthew identified himself as Julius Spangler. But no one would have wanted to kill Uncle Julius without having heard the will. Nobody but Roderick, who was in on the whole joke and knew that he was going to get 300,000 bucks out of the phony will. So he merely pushed the old man off the balcony, made it look like an accident, see? Yeah. And, uh, and you doped all this out just like that? Well, no, not just like that, Nicky, I... Finally, I caught on. And now, sweetheart, in spite of the bandage, I think a little stroll along the beach is going to do me a lot of good. You know, I'm officially on vacation. Rest and recreation for two full days, at least. Uh, here in Avalon, maybe? Where else? See you later, Nikki. outside and down to the pretty strip of beach that runs along behind the spot where the steamer docks. I felt a lot better. I sat down on the moon-drenched sand and relaxed for the first time that night. As I sat there, I reached into my breast pocket for a cigarette, but instead came out with the expensive cigar that Matthew Spangler had given me. It wasn't until I had lit it and was puffing along that I suddenly remembered that Matthew Spangler had really been Julius, so I got rid of the cigar. Hey, just in time. Yeah, I wasn't sure, but maybe Julius Spangler, wherever he was, was having the last laugh, after all. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. 
Featured in the cast were Alan Reed as Julia Spangler and Dora Singleton as Nikki, with Ann Morrison, John Daner, Paul Duboff, and Peter Leeds. The special music is by Richard O'Runt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... The partner from Mexico City, the stranger dead in Nevada, and the man with the cauliflower ear all added up to a corpse on a concrete floor. But I couldn't figure why until I had found out that there was one name above all that had to be remembered. Tonight, CBS's great hour-long Saturday night fun show, Sing It Again, will be back on the air after a week's absence. Be sure to be around later tonight when Sing It Again returns with its phantom voice mystery and its riddle songs, which pay off in wonderful prizes. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for The Case of the Red-Headed Bank Robber, tonight's gangbusters drama, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. partner from Mexico City, the stranger dead in Nevada, and the man with the cauliflower ear, all added up to a corpse on a concrete floor. But I couldn't figure why until I found out there was one name above all that had to be remembered. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. <laughs> Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Name to Remember. The big clock at the far end of the Beverly Room cocktail lounge with the opaque glass ice cubes where there should have been numbers said it was 20 after 5. That meant my new client, Eddie Millette, was late. So sitting at an uncomfortable mushroom for two, I waited and worked on a long drink and stared down into the mirrored top of my table. I stopped staring when the reflection of the tabletop changed from red ceiling to gray Hamburg and pale blue eyes in an almost friendly face. I looked up to find easygoing Eddie Millette looking about as he had been a year ago, dapper in draped flannel, carnation attached, and a thin smile on thinner lips. He sat down, took off his hat, and shook hands all in one quick motion. And I knew he was either in trouble, a hurry, or both. Marlowe, business. Business. You gotta find the nut who's been following me for the last couple of days. He's big. A lot of muscle under a t-shirt and a kind of jacket like the Dodgers wear when they're warming up, you know what I mean? I can't figure out what this bird's after. That bothers me. All the time, he's like it. What? Hanging around. Oh. And if I go for him, he runs. So what I want you to do is, uh, I, you get next to him and the answer to this tag. Here. 50, 70, 80, 100 bucks. Enough, Phil? Enough. You know, Eddie, the law might do this for you for free. Yeah, for John Doe, they might. But Eddie Millett's oh. another story, Marlowe. You know what I mean? Today, I got a respectable business. War surplus. Hey, but the cops, they only remember me as a guy who once did time for being careless with other people's dough. Yeah. Besides, I'm in a hurry. My two partners, Lou Tripp and Ruth Dunn. She's also my girl. They're coming back to town tonight. I'd like to spend some time with both of them. Without interruption. What do you mean, girl, Eddie? 
You and that pretty wife I've heard about split up? Yeah, I'm suing for divorce right now. Tina and I never should have been, Marlo. We ne- yeah, I need someone who's softer, more honest and understanding. Know what I mean? Mm. Now, take this here road. Uh, can I help Gee. you, sir? Huh? Oh, oh, yeah, scotch. No bars. Uh, make it a double. Very well, sir. This Ruth Marlowe, she's different. Uh-huh. Good head for business, sweet kid at the same time. Like, for instance, the letter I got from her today. She and Lou were both in Mexico City. She's got all the dope on the deal we're working on, plus the fact she's worrying about me. Uh, that should bring us right back to T-shirt, remember? Where do I start, Eddie? At uh, the only place I know of, Marlowe. Yesterday, I kind of turned the tables on this guy, trailed him down to the corner of Wilshire and Western. But he got away in the middle of a lot of traffic, you know what I mean? In a car? Huh? Car. Oh, no, we were both walking. No. no, I figured from his bill and that T-shirt, he could work in one of these health clubs around it. You find out, then come to my place on Hoover before 8, huh? By the way, he's got black curly hair and uh, one ear is all, all banged up uh, cauliflower-like. Right one. Anything else? No, Eddie, I'll see you. Know what I mean? Huh? Two hours after I'd left Eddie Millette, I checked with a half a dozen hooray for health clubs in the neighborhood, smelled a lot of liniment, and came away with nothing more than distended nostrils. So at 7.30, I pointed my car toward 8400 North Hoover in the hope that my client could give me something else to go on. The Millette home was well-groomed and sat sedately behind 50 rolling yards of carefully clipped hedge and said the gardener must have gone to Barber's College. So when I leaned against the front doorbell, I expected Eddie in at least a silk lapel smoking jacket with slippers to match. When the door swung open, I got a surprise. Because I was greeted instead by a lot of white T-shirt, and in front of that and coming straight from my head was a fist the size of a muskmelon. Oh! Okay, Private Detective hired by Eddie Millett in the Beverly Room. Get up! Don't so much as smile crooked or I'll twist your arm in two. Uh, uh, What is it you want? One thing, a chance to bust you in the nose. (laughs) What nerve. Yeah? Listen, stupid, if I had the time, I'd tie your arm into a square knot, then rip it off at the hinges and throw it away. Right now, I've got what I came for. I'm in a hurry, so you're real lucky. How about Eddie Millette, Muscles? How lucky is he? Very. He's inside, resting. Just like you're gonna be, Mr. time I got back to my feet and had my right arm unscrewed to where I could reach across my chest and my shoulder holster a t-shirt was gone. So I started into the house and what I knew was going to be a slightly beat up client. When I turned on the lights and found nothing in the kitchen, bathroom or bedroom, I began to worry a little more. I got to the den and saw that the drawers of a desk that were turned inside out, but there was still no Eddie. I opened a side door and started out to the patio which ran along the front of the house. Then at the staccato report of high heels coming up the flagstone path that led to the front door, I stopped and waited. When the lady, who was a quiet face and quiet clothes, came to a halt in the open doorway, puzzled and called Eddie's name out loud, I figured this had to be Ruth Dunn, girlfriend and partner out of Mexico City. So I walked back through the house to the living room. Eddie, it's Ruth. Eddie Millette, are you playing a game with me? Why, who are you? What are you doing here? I'm Philip Marlowe, Miss Dunn. I was hired by your boyfriend because he was worried about a bunch of muscles in a t-shirt with curly black hair, a cauliflower ear, and a brain you could drop through the hole in a lifesaver. Mean anything to you? No, it doesn't. But where's Eddie, Mr. Marlowe, and why is the front door open like this, and why are all the lights on? In that order, I don't know where Eddie is. Front door's open because that's where t-shirt and I played Ben, the private detective, and all the lights are on because I was looking for Eddie. 
But he's not here any place? The bedroom, the kitchen? So far, no. Come on in here, see if this desk in the den adds for you, maybe. Drawers have been slightly rearranged by a very heavy hand. Incidentally, T-Shirt was bragging about getting what he'd come for just as he collapsed me for the second time, so if you... Oh, the letters. They're gone. What letters? The ones I wrote to Eddie while I was on the road. He always kept them here in the bottom drawer. Were they business or pleasure? Well, business mostly, but I... I did talk of other things, too. Yeah, I know. Eddie mentioned that when he told me about you and Lou Tripp being due back tonight. Oh, by the way, where is Tripp? Well, I don't know. He left me in Mexico City the day before yesterday and said he'd be here tonight at the latest. Oh, surely, Marla, you don't think that Lou had anything to do with this? Could be. Letters are part business. And part love. So I'd say that the only person who could possibly be behind this is Mrs. Millette. Tina? Yes. And for the oldest and best reason in the world, Marla. Jealousy. Tina'd do anything to make Eddie and me unhappy. She could twist the innocent wording of those letters so that any divorced judge would see things her way. She's cruel, Marlowe, and she... Marlowe. Hmm? Under that door there that leads to the garage. It... It's blood, Marlowe. Stay over there, Ruth. Oh, Eddie. Eddie, are you... Oh, Marlowe, he's dead, isn't he? Yeah, honey. I'm afraid he is. Eddie Millett was dead. Real dead. Oh, Eddie. The right side of his head crushed him. Eddie. And next to him and on the edge of the ugly pool of blood that had seeped under the door was the grease-coated tire iron that had done the job. I turned Ruth away, and it wasn't until we were back in the living room and she'd stopped sobbing long enough to take the double shot of brandy that I'd forced on her that... I started for the telephone and a call to Detective Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide. But before I could pick up the receiver, it went off. Hello? Now, this is Lieutenant Ibarra at police headquarters. I've Ibarra? Huh? How <laughs> great can service be? This is Marlowe. I was just going to call you. Did I dial your office number by mistake, Marlowe? No, no mistake, Lieutenant. I'm at Eddie Millett's. I've been working for him since this afternoon. What's up? Why the call? A dead man named Ellis Clay in a motel outside of Carson City, Nevada, Phil. Yeah? It looks like an accidental explosion in his room there, and the best the sheriff has for identification other than his name in the city, Los Angeles, is a blank sheet of letterhead paper from Eddie Millette's war surplus outfit. So I thought Millette might be able to help us out. Is he there? Yeah. And dead, Ibarra. Huh? Murdered with a tire iron sometime in the last hour. What? Mm-hmm. Any idea who did it? A muscle man in a T-shirt, maybe. But at the moment, Ibarra, the motive seems to be a little mixed. Say, wait a minute. I may be able to help you on that Nevada guy, Bruce. Ruth, do you know anything about a man named Clay in Carson City? He had Eddie's address on him when he was killed in an accident. Clay? Yeah, yeah. In Nevada? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, Phil, no, I don't. No. Hello, Ibarra. Yeah? The girl here who was one of Eddie's partners never heard of him. All right, but that's unimportant now. What I am interested in is Millette's death. What's the address out there? And why... It's 8400 North Hoover. North what? Hoover, as in vacuum cleaner. But look, if it's all the same to you, Ebar, I'd like to move. And I think if I do it fast enough, I've got an even chance of catching up with this T-shirt. Okay? Well, all right, Marlowe, but don't forget, we've got a couple of thousand policemen here in L.A., just in case you can't... Yeah, yeah, goodbye, Ibarra. Ruth. Ruth, honey, why don't you go to your own place and try to take it easy, huh? When I talk to Ibarra again, I'll tell him where you can be found. All right, Phil. But where are you going? To the only place that adds now, Tina Millett's. You know where it is? Yeah. The cameo house on Rexford Drive in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. 
Also, if, it, if it's any help, she she drives a new cream-colored Nash. But Marlo, be careful. Tina may be the one who hired that man in the T-shirt. Yeah, I know. And that, honey, is exactly what I'm banking on. I'll call you. After I got the vital statistics on where I could reach Ruth later on, I piled into my car and headed for Beverly Hills in the Cameo House, which was six stories of white stone and glass brick. Tina Millette managed to uh, scrimp by with half of the top floor, and a couple of minutes later, when I got out of the old mirror elevator, walked to her door, rang and waited. I was wondering what kind of a reception I'd get. But when the door opened, I stopped wondering and started concentrating. You, uh, you want something? something the texture of spun smoke rings. It stood five feet six inches over the threshold and must have weighed in at close to 120. With every inch a thing of beauty and every pound just in the right place. I asked you if you wanted something. Do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I mean, <laughs> the name's Philip Marlowe, Mrs. Millette. I'm, I'm a private detective your husband hired this afternoon. Why don't you let me in like a good little girl, huh? Because that's something I'm not. Now, get out of here before I call the police. Who are probably on their way up here right now. Oh? Your husband's dead, Mrs. Milletti. was murdered. He... Eddie murdered? Yeah, yeah. Now, do you still mind if I come in? No, of course not. I... I don't know what to say. Oh, that's a trite line. What was that? I said you're acting and doing a bum job of it. I ought to slap your face. Or call your boy with the muscles and have him go back to work on my arm for a while. What are you talking about? A lad in a white T-shirt who killed Eddie and then stole a bunch of letters that were going to help you lie your way through a countersuit for divorce. Would leave Eddie both broke and embarrassed. You don't make sense, bright boy. No? First of all, I don't know who you're talking about. And second, if I were going to file such a countersuit, why would I want my husband killed first? Maybe you didn't. We all make mistakes, Mrs. Millette. Which is only one man's opinion. Hmm. So why don't I just pick up my coat here and... Let the perfect gentleman escort me to the nearest police station. All right, it's a date. I see you bowl quite a bit, Tina. Good enough to win that cup there from the Maplewood Alleys on Wilshire near Weston. <laughs> Eddie figured a health club, and I went right along. Never thought about the bowling alley near there, and I, uh, oh. Yes, Marlowe? You were saying something? Uh, yes, I was, but the little gun in your hand made me lose my place. Marlowe, I don't believe that Eddie's dead. Nor do I believe that you work for him at all. For my money, you're just a not-so-smart boy who was hired by that hussy Ruth Dunn. She's going to need an army of private detectives before I get through, and I mean that. Now back up through those doors and get out on the fire escape. While you do what? Well, I find out exactly what's going on. I get out there. It's six long floors to the ground, Marlow. And I hope with the first step you take that you trip, fall all the way, and break your neck. Goodbye, private detective. <laughs> just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, just a little later on CBS Tonight, you'll hear Sing It Again's Master of Ceremonies, Dan Seymour, giving a perfect characterization of a man going crazy. The reason? Well, Dan's got the biggest, hottest news in the history of quiz shows ready for announcement right after someone knocks off tonight's $20,500 Phantom Voice mystery. So be sure to hear Sing It Again tonight when it comes to you at 10 o'clock. Eastern Time, on most of these same CBS stations. 
And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Name to Remember. Tina Millette prodded me out onto the fire escape through a pair of French doors, slammed them shut, and snapped the lock. There was a cold look in her smoky eyes, an unwavering potential about the snub-nosed gun clenched in her hand and pointed straight at my belt buckle that melted all the gambler out of me fast. So I watched quietly as she backed across the room to the hall door and out. I knew my chances of climbing down six flights of iron fire escape in time to head her off was an idiot's dream. So, <clears throat> kicked a panel out of one of the doors... Reached through and finally got it unlocked. And I went back inside at the phone. Since the vixen was on the prowl with a gun in her fist, I figured the least I could do was pass the word along. Hello? Ruth, this is Marlowe. Oh, Phil. Have you found the letters? Not yet, but never mind that now. You got something more important to worry about because your guess on Eddie's ex-wife, Tina, was right on the button. You mean she's the one who's really after the letters? Yeah, yeah, that muscle man in the T-shirt is just doing a heavy work for her. And I've got a good idea that he's connected with a Maplewood bowling alley on Wilshire. Where are you now, Phil? In Tina's apartment, alone. I just lost a small debate with her. And get this, Ruth. She hates you, and she's the type who hates hard. Yeah. When she left here, she had a gun, and the chances are at least 50-50 that she's coming your way. So keep your doors locked and stay away from windows, savvy? Yeah, okay, Phil. Oh, oh, one more thing before I shove off. Has Millette's partner, Lou Tripp, shown yet? No. At least he hasn't called me. Uh-huh. But where are you going, Phil? At bowling alley on Wilshire. Only this time, I'm swinging first. Maplewood was a small and dusky combination six-lane bowling alley restaurant, bar and magazine stand, and cigar store, all slightly down at the heel and more than hungry for business. Only two alleys were in use, and a lanky postgraduate delinquent with a mouthful of gum and a complexion one-tone greener than his eye shade was the only houseman in sight. He looked up and watched me as I moved over to the bulletin board where a bank of photographs were tacked up, picturing the champions of the uh, local league. Sure enough, there in the top row and holding a bowling ball that had more expression than his face was the pile of muscles in a T-shirt, which the caption tagged as one Sid Sawyer. So I walked over to the counter where the houseman sat and made like a one-man fan club. What's your problem, Mac? I, uh, I see Sid's up there with the champs. Is he around tonight? I wouldn't know. Uh, where can I get in touch with him? I wouldn't have the faintest idea, Mac. He works here, doesn't he? Yeah, off and on. But you don't know where he lives or what his phone number is, huh? Well, you're just beginning to get the idea. Uh, Come here, you! Cut it out, will you? Take your hands off of me. You get the idea and get it fast unless you want your teeth crammed down your throat. Where does Sawyer live? Now, wait a minute, mister. Take it easy. I'll tell you. He, he's got a room over on Shadow Street, 6340, upstairs. He don't have no phone. All right, that's better. Is he there now? I I think so. But, gee, I don't know why everybody is so interested in Sid Sawyer all of a sudden. Who else is interested? Some babe called a couple of minutes ago. An old friend, she said. It's the reason I give you the store. Yeah. Honest. You see... Sid don't like to be interrupted when he's entertaining old friends. Is that so? Well, this is one party that's going to get crowded whether he likes it or not. 6340 Shadow Street was a top-heavy, stale, gingerbread house left over from the days when Los Angeles was a stopover between Spanish missions. 
I got out of my car and started across the street toward the door when I saw Tina Millette's cream-colored sedan sticking out through a tangle of overgrown brush in the driveway, which meant I was still in time for the big reunion. So I went inside and up the steps to Sawyer's door. There was a light on and movement, but no voices. I slipped my gun out of its holster, knocked lightly, and stepped back. And the knob turned slowly and the door cracked open. I kicked hard! Hey, don't move, muscles. I'm returning your visit. Where's Tina? Who's Tina? Look, her car's outside in the driveway. She's here after the letters, isn't she? What letters? You're nuts. I don't know what you're talking about. And these suitcases, you wouldn't be skipping town, would you? Listen, Shamus, you're barking up the wrong tree. I don't know anything, get me? Yeah? Okay, Sawyer, if you insist, we'll do it the hard way. That squares us for that arm-twisting job you gave me. Now we'll start all over again, even. Get up! Come on! Quit hitting me with that gun. I don't enjoy doing it, so the faster you talk, the sooner I'll stop. Where's Tina? I don't know what you do. Make it straight. I haven't got all night. All right, all right. No more. That's better. She she came and picked up the letters, and she left again. Five minutes before you got here. Five minutes, you're lying. Take a look out that window and tell me why your car's still outside. I don't know what... Where? I don't see it. In the driveway next door. It... Holy smoke, it's gone. All right, Sawyer, that means I can spare 30 seconds for the rest of the story, so make it fast. She told you little Eddie Millette is dead. That's why you're blowing town, isn't it? No. Now, wait a minute, Marlowe. I never killed him. I just knocked him down. Sure, sure. On a concrete floor with a tire iron. No, Skip I Skip it. Those letters you got were written by Ruth Dunn. Was Tina heading for Ruth when she left here? I don't know. Come on, Sawyer. I'm running out of time. Won't do you any good to try to protect Tina now? Oh, no. We'll see about that, Marlowe. Why, you... I hope Tina was worth a broken jaw. Good night, muscles. I took a close look at Sawyer to be sure he was down for the long count. Then I stepped out the door and into a whispering circle of wide-eyed neighbors who had heard the fight and had already called the police. I flashed my identification, issued a battle order to the three huskiest ones, and then ran down the stairs to my car. I made it from Shadow Street to Ruth's bungalow on Normandy in something under five minutes, but still not fast enough. Because when I ground to a stop in front of the place, I saw that same cream-colored sedan already there, close to a side door. I belted up the walk and was halfway to the house when I heard it. <laughs> Made me sick. Went up to a front window where the only light was burning and looked in. A room had been torn up and in the middle of it all, face down on the tangled carpet, was Tina Millette. And it was Ruth who was slumped in a chair, her face buried in her arms and sobbing hysterically. And still dangling from her hand was Tina's snub-nosed revolver. She looked up as I walked in. I know, I know. Come on, baby. Take it easy. It's going to be all right. Oh, she had this, she had this gun. She was crazy. Phil, yeah, she was yeah. going to kill me. I, I don't know what happened. I struggled with her, and then I, I realized I had the gun in my hand. I, I shot her. I didn't even think I just pulled the trigger on you. She, she's dead, Phil. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Ruth. Leave it alone. It's over now. Now try to get hold of yourself. She brought the letters back. They're on the desk. She said that they didn't matter anymore, that she was mixed up in Eddie's murder and there was nothing left for her but to run. She said she, she took the gun out of her purse and said I'd ruined her whole life and that she was going to be sure I got what was coming to me before she left. That's when it happened, Phil. I was so scared I went out of my head, I guess. Yeah, we better call Ibarra, honey. I think we can explain it all now, except... Except one thing. Uh, Ruth, do you remember that guy Barra called us about? The one who was killed in Nevada? 
Ellis Clay. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Clay. I've had the feeling all night that some way his death is tied up with all this. It's only a hunch, but something seems to be missing. What is it, Phil? What's missing? I don't know yet. Look, honey, I want to take a look at these letters. You go call the police, will you? It was a long shot, but while Ruth went down the hall to phone the police, I flipped through the bundle of envelopes that had caused all the trouble. And the long shot began to pay off. I could hear Ruth talking to her desk sergeant as I picked up Tina's revolver. I broke it open. But then a pair of headlights and a red spot of a police car flashed in the driveway, and I knew that he borrowed, figured out a few things for himself. I put the gun down on the table again, told Ruth to forget her call, and when the lieutenant came in, Ruth and I together explained everything that had happened right up to Tina Millette's body on the floor. Well, it's quite a mess, isn't it? Anyway, this part of it looks like a clear case of self-defense. Right, Marlon? Exactly right, Ibarra. It looks like self-defense, only there's something missing. Something missing? What do you mean, Marlowe? At least three letters from that packet there. I think they're the last ones you wrote to Eddie, Ruth. They're gone. Oh, that's strange. I, I don't understand it. And another missing item is Lou Tripp, Eddie's partner. He didn't show up tonight because I think he's in Nevada, dead under the name of Clay. What? Marlowe, you you mean that Lou and that, that, that Clay were really the same man? Mm-hmm. Look, what are you getting at with all this theory, Marlowe? You'll see, Barra. Lou Tripp was double-crossing Eddie Millette. Lou went to Mexico with Ruth here, only he left early and flew to Nevada to close a big deal under the name of Clay. Meanwhile, some letters were written from Mexico to preserve the illusion that Lou Tripp was still there. Understand what I mean, Ruth? Yes, I... I think so. Yeah, and then the unexpected happened. Lou, identified as Clay, died accidentally in Nevada. That meant that sooner or later those letters would be exposed as lies. Right, Ruth? Marlo, that gun on the table, watch it! Too late, Lieutenant. Now, don't move. Either one of you. You haven't got a chance, baby. Stay back. Please, Phil, I don't want to kill you, but I will if you come one step closer. Stay back, Marlo. She means it. Look, baby. You're licked. Marlo. It was a good try, but you lost. Stay back. Why not go out? Like a lady. (laughs) Oh, what difference does it make now? she cracked, she really went to pieces and told the whole story. Yeah? Yeah, she and Lou Tripp were working together all right. When he died in Nevada, the lie she told in those letters put her in a tight jam with Eddie, see? So when she found Eddie unconscious in his garage, she finished him. But when she went for the letters, Sid Sawyer scared her off. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Incidentally, the state is going to give Sawyer a long vacation in one of their better institutions. Good, good. What happened down at Sawyer's place, Ibarra? You know, Ruth had a lot of nerve, Marlon. Yeah. She found Tina Millette's car at Sawyer's, so she waited in the back seat until Tina came out with the letters. Then she sapped her, drove the car to her house, and faked that slick self-defense setup. And she still doesn't know where she made the mistake that caught her. Hey, where was it, Phil? Well, she was being real cagey, Barra. She decided it was too dangerous to write the name Clay down anyplace, so she made it a name to remember. And she did. But too well. What do you mean, Phil? <laughs> well, when I asked her for it, the first name Ellis popped out, too. Mm-hmm. There was no legitimate way for her to know that you gave me the full name over the phone, but I only gave her Clay. That was an opening, but I needed proof. Mm-hmm. So you needled her until she made a break. Mm. Then you walked into the gun she'd grabbed. Uh, you take some long chances, Phil. Oh, oh, I'll do anything to see justice prevail, Ibarra. I smell a rat. You should. I emptied the gun. 
<laughs> when she was phoning. <laughs> Good night, Phil. Good morning, Ivara. When I left police headquarters and walked to my car, first gray streaks of a new day were breaking in the east. Should have given me a lift, but it didn't. And now it was time for me to go home and go to bed, but instead I sat in my car with the door open and smoked a cigarette while I watched the dawn come up. And I couldn't help thinking what an odd trick nature plays on us. Some of the most beautiful creatures most deadly. For instance, Ruth. How soft and sweet and lovely she was. And how hard she could swing a tire iron. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gene Bates, Paul Fries, Yvonne Patey, Jack Moyles, and Jerry Hausner. Detective Lieutenant Ibarra is played by Jeff Corey. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It was hot and still, an August night in the middle of April. But that didn't matter to the striptease dancer in the golden mask because murder made her blood run cold the night the heat waves struck. There will be more dramatic excitement of the chase tomorrow on CBS's two Sunday shows, Broadway is My Beat and The Adventures of Sam Spade. Broadway is My Beat brings you The Adventures of Danny Clover, whose beat is the Great White Way and whose cases involve a vast, strange assortment of Broadway characters. Later, Dashiell Hammett's great detective, Sam Spade, cuts another caper surrounded by mystery and mayhem in the grand style. The Adventures of Sam Spade and Broadway is My Beat are regular Sunday features on most of the same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately on most of these stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>